Hello, you're listening to The History of Now, a podcast run from the history faculty of the University of Cambridge, or more precisely, from a locked down living room just north of the River Cam. This podcast is about how thinking about the past can help us to think about the present. And right now we're running a series of episodes on issues related to the crisis triggered by the current COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Clark, and my conversation partner today is Professor Gary Gerstel. Gary is the Paul Mellon Professor of American History at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of Sydney Sussex College. He's author of a number of celebrated books, but the one that touches most on our discussion today is his prize-winning Liberty and Coercion, The Paradox of American Government from the Founding to the Present. Gary, Liberty and Coercion is not a book about disease, but the story it tells does seem to connect with the predicament that we're facing today because your book is about the ascendance, the gradual ascendance of federal government in the United States, about the process by which power accrued to the center, a process that was and remains contested and that was far from linear. One of the arguments you develop in the book is that the growth in the remit of federal government was highly responsive to shocks and emergencies. It's a stop-start process. The growth of government tended to be intertwined with questions about security, safety in the face of foreign attack, but also from domestic threats. Well, COVID-19 is a major threat to the biosecurity of countries everywhere in the world, including the United States. Do you see any links at all between the issues you addressed in liberty and coercion and the crisis we're facing right now? Yes, I do, Chris. Um, a crisis of American government is playing out on a daily basis. Screens, newspapers, Twitter, all across the world. Uh, let me say a few words uh, for your listeners about the nature of government in America. There's history that matters here uh, that I cover in the book, and that will be relevant to our conversation the starting point is the suspicions that Americans have long had of centralized government power, of power concentrated in Washington, D.C. The American Revolution uh, imagined itself as a revolt against the tyrannical authority, George III of Britain, and in an effort to make sure that that tyranny would never be repeated, the framers of the Constitution authorized a government at the central level that would be limited in its power, that would be fragmented, that would be frustrated in various kinds of ways. Uh, so the suspicion of Washington and the suspicion of centralized government power goes back to the very beginning of the Republic and is woven into one of America's most cherished origins story. And that helps us understand what to Europeans would look very bizarre if you've ever been to New Hampshire you'll ride around and you'll say, you'll see on license plates, live free or die. So <laughs> living free by the residents of New Hampshire means living free of government. It doesn't mean living free of capital or other possible forms of tyranny. It means living free of government. And today and historically across time, wherever you go in America, you will encounter this kind of sentiment. Now, the attitude towards state governments is very different. And here I have in mind New Hampshire, New York, Massachusetts, California, Texas, Alabama, Washington State, Alaska. You get your choice. The states were given a broad remit of power, 
called the police power to look after the good and welfare of the Commonwealth. They are constitutionally designated as what we might call first responders to the needs of citizens, including disease and pandemics. And they have had enormous powers across American history, unconstrained by the Bill of Rights, which is America's original document of civil liberties. Historically, the states have had responsibility for responding to disease, for responding to epidemics. So this is the situation in the 19th century, individual states very powerful, the central government very fragmented and frustrated. But over time, from the mid-19th to the mid-20th century, uh, states, individual states, show themselves inadequate to the task of governing. They, they can't govern large national and then transnational corporations with the powers they have. They can't handle war. And what is the story of America about in the 20th century? It's the story of capitalism unleashed and war unleashed. And so there are demands that Washington take on more and more power. And during the decades of the Great Depression, World War II, the Cold War, and civil rights, this is exactly what happens. The federal government becomes big, well-resourced, full of expertise, develops a high reputation for having managed capitalism successfully, having won the Second World War, having taken on the task of the immense task of racial reconstruction a second time. Science and public health becomes a part of its remit. Uh, there's a 1944 Public Health Act, which we should come back to later, that establishes the Center for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Science, the National mm -hmm. Cancer Institute. This is part of the firmament of agencies that are so important today, and they are concentrated in Washington, D.C. Now, much of the actual action for handling disease is still left to the states. But in the Public Health Act of 1944, there's a clause that strongly suggests that the federal government has the ability to do whatever it needs to handle the case of disease if it determines that the states have not been up to the task. It has powers it needs to take action to shut everything down, to take over from the states. Now, that's never really been tried, so it hasn't been tested in court. But the power is theoretically there. So in the, the power is invested in the federal government and in the also in the presidency. I mean, does the president what what kinds of powers are vested in the presidency for handling a pandemic crisis of this kind? Well, the president has the power to, to declare a national emergency. And once he declares a national emergency, he has the authority uh, to invoke a very large remit of powers that have grown enormously across the last 75 years, much mm. of that time, the United States having been at war in one form or another, either a declared war or an undeclared war. If you take the years of World War II, if you take the years in which the U.S. was involved in the Cold War, that's 1946 to 1989, what's that, 43 years? That's mm. an undeclared war, but the U.S. reserves many emergency powers. The U.S. has had many emergency powers. This means the federal government as a result of the War on Terror and the Patriots Act of 2001 and later reaffirmed. So the U.S. is uh, used to being uh, in a situation of emergency. And over that time, the presidency uh, has acquired enormous powers of emergency 
very easy for the president to invoke. Now, before we actually talk about these powers, let me say one other aspect of the history, which is very relevant. Yeah. Outside of emergency, the growth of federal government power uh, has been challenged by the Republicans on this basis. As the federal government was taking over more and more things once done by the states, what was the constitutional basis for that growth? What was the constitutional basis for that shift? Mm. What should have happened is that a constitutional amendment should have passed, shifting the powers from the states to the federal government. But it's impossible to pass a constitutional amendment in the United States. And so for the federal government to accumulate the power it wanted, it had to act by indirection. It had to say it was doing one thing while it was doing another. It said it had the authority to act in civil rights because civil rights was about regulating interstate commerce. Now, you yeah. would think regulating interstate commerce is something very different from giving people civil rights. But in America, these things get fused and Republicans begin to say, wait a minute, what is the legitimate constitutional basis for this power? And these questions become so intense that the central issue in American life in the late 20th and early 21st century is has the power of the central government exceeded its boundaries? Has it, has it become illegitimate? And more and more Republicans follow this man named Grover Norquist, who used to say and still does say he wanted to shrink the power of the federal government to the point where you could drown it in a bathtub. This is a man who's a central player in the Republican Party for decades. The Republican Party has been assaulting the legitimacy of federal power, the ability of the federal government to act for 20 years. All this happened before Trump came into office. So already before he came into office, the central government was being hollowed out. It was being curbed in terms of its ability to act. It was being frustrated at um, more and more turns. This is the government that Trump inherited. This is one reason why he's, he gets elected, because all his supporters think, well, the federal government is nothing but a big swamp. Just drain it and we'll be better off. So a contempt for federal government has overhung American politics for the last 30 years, and it has created in the current situation a much bigger crisis that would otherwise, than would otherwise be the case, because the federal government has the authority to act and to intervene, but the Republican governing party, and this includes the Senate and Trump himself, don't really want to act, uh, have grown up in an environment where they think it's not the responsibility of the federal government to take care of these problems. And at every turn, they have been slow to act and to de deploy powers that are at the, their disposal. And, the, and even if they wanted to act, so many agencies of the federal government have been hollowed out. Uh, so many institutions of government have been starved of resources that the level of expertise that one would expect that began to accumulate in the federal government during the Second World War and the early years of the Cold War, a lot of those people, a lot of those skills have left. A lot mm. of agencies under Trump have acting directors. They don't even have permanent directors. There are not people of experience there. And yeah. so one of the great jewels of American government, the Centers for Disease Control, is not what it was. 
And so the fact that it's failed spectacularly to generate a test that would determine the the COVID-19 virus is really not a surprise at all. It's a very sad day for no. American politics. Indeed. I mean, I want to come back to how you think these developments are shaping the response to the pandemic challenge. But um, I, I also wanted to ask you, before we get on to that, whether you would say then that the process that you chart, that you reconstruct in liberty and coercion, is has it been to an extent thrown into reverse? Um, and the reason I'm asking is because, um, of course, this the last 25, last 30 years have also been a period of war making on quite a quite considerable scale. Um, and war making is traditionally one of the know, activities which favors the growth of state um, prerogatives uh, in that American, within that American constitutional structure. Yes. So what are you referring to as being thrown in reverse? You mean a focus on war making is now shifting? Well, the ascendancy, of the, the ascendancy of the federal state, the federal state authority, which you, which you, is, is something whose history you're interested in, in liberty and coercion. And you show that this is this very stop and start process. Uh, has that been thrown into reverse in the face of the pandemic or, um, or, or more generally in the face of a sort of Republican challenge to federal government? And how would in, one, how would one in, the, that? in the face of Republican challenge? Historically, you're absolutely right. Uh, states have, and here I mean central states, have fattened on war. It gives them, uh, it forces them to uh, set very high taxes on the population. Those resources from taxation often begin to flow into yeah. other things other than war itself. What distinguishes the most recent period of American war making is that uh, is, is that war making itself as a function of government has been sealed off from spillover effects into other areas of government. So as mm. whereas in World War II in the early years of the Cold War, the activity of the U.S. government at war spilled over into all sorts of other things, uh, lavishly funded education programs, uh, a national highway system, enormous funds for science and technology seen as being necessary uh, to win the Cold War. There were all these uh, other effects, and it, it bolstered a belief in government. It gave uh, underpinning to the, uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, thinking mm. if we can win the war, we can... We can win uh, on the question of racial inequality in American life. And the Great Society was this great domestic unfurling of power, all of it inspired by World War II. When uh, Lyndon Johnson declared a war on poverty, he had World War II in mind, that kind of effort, that kind of initiative. What's been characteristic of the last 20 or 30 years is that war has been sealed off from its possible implications for other areas of government. So while that, the- that is, that is fascinating because that, that it's the disruption of that mechanism, which explains how you can have this, you know, successful assault on federal government, which is, which is producing phenomena of shrinkage and desiccation at the center. And at the same time have, you know, very expansive war making efforts, but no longer with the kind of, you know, government expanding effects of an earlier era. That's extremely interesting. So that mechanism has gone into, into, into well, it's, it's been neutralized. Do you think that an, an emergency like the COVID-19 emergency, I mean, as you know, in the UK, um, the comparison has often been made explicitly or implicitly with the Second World War and the, the airwaves have been full of Second World War language and metaphors and references. Um, of course, others have 
you know, in my view, rightly question whether this is a war, whether you can fight a war against a virus or whether a virus is an enemy in the sense that applies to a political conflict. Do you think that the COVID-19 crisis poses questions uh, of a similar kind to, say, a security crisis of the type we associate with the, with the terrorist attacks of 9-11? Or is it sui generis? Is it a different kind of threat? Well, it, 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 is a, it is a different kind of threat, and I, I think part of the difficulty of the moment, uh, not just in uh, the United States, but in Europe and in every country that's dealing with this crisis, is that no society has experienced dealing with a crisis of disease on this scale uh, and of this intensity. And I think some of the bumbling that's going on everywhere, as far as I can tell, is, has to do with a lack of experience and a, a lack of knowledge for a set of circumstances that is unprecedented. And uh, we have to go back centuries, uh, not quite to the Black Plague, but you know, the very widespread smallpox ep epidemics of the 18th century and maybe cholera. And this was a time when central states were not nearly as powerful um, as they are now. So uh, I think it, it, it the, the virus is clearly a different kind of enemy. Uh, the only good thing I'll say about the virus is that it's an enemy. Uh, Donald Trump's world is populated by enemies. And he's very used to dealing and triumphing over enemies, even against all odds. But this is clearly an enemy he has never encountered before. And all his strategies for dealing with enemies are utterly useless in this particular moment. And we might take that as a metaphor for the difficulties uh, that are uh, before us now, both in the United States and elsewhere. And this puts a premium on imagination, experimentation, multiple uh, responses. Uh, having said that, even recognizing how different it is, uh, I think that uh, the appeals to uh, unity that is required in times of war, uh, appeals to equality of sacrifice that can be made in times of war uh, to make sure that the difficulties of this situation are borne by the citizenry in, in some kind of egalitarian and fair way. Uh, that the notion that sacrifices have, have, have to be made, the notion that people have to look out for each other in ways that they might not, not, might not otherwise do, the fact that government would have to do extraordinary things, and, and even the federal government in America in its adult state has done extraordinary things. It's, it's got uh, $1, $2, $2 trillion a, a rescue package passed. When Obama was trying to deal with the 2008 crisis, he could not get to one trillion. Uh, before we're out of this, will probably be a second two trillion dollar aid package, and then mm -hmm. there are all kinds of add-ons, so that the uh, the 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 uh, expenditure of funds that the U.S. federal government is 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 calling forth, and this doesn't even get to the Fed and it's easy money right now. This is on a scale of war, and the federal government is also beginning to contemplate a scale of debt that is inconceivable except in times of war. So that I think the analogy of war uh, is correct. And also I think the uh, the invocation of emergency powers that one is accustomed to seeing in times of war is appropriate for this occasion. I think the challenge is that 
the agencies that have to act in an emergency-like way are simply not used to acting in this way, and those are state governments. Um, CDC has never been involved in a crisis of this magnitude before. And so uh, it, this is not the Defense Department, which is used to acting in uh, emergencies. This is not about producing tanks or warfare or mobilizing troops for a foreign invasion. This is calling on aspects of the government that have not been well taken care of the last 20 or 25 years, have been hollowed out in many respects, and are in no circumstances prepared for the fight that has landed on their doorstep. So in that respect, it's it's different. But I think the I don't object to the analogies uh, for war, because it's going to take that kind of massive effort, that level of expenditure um, that we associate and that we accept only in times of war. Yes, absolutely. No, I, I accept that. I, I mean, I suppose what I was thinking of, I mean, you used just now the word mobilization. And I think that that's that's um, that's certainly what happens in times of war. Um, and that's in a way what partly what allows societies to carry the pain of the immense expenditure of war, let alone its other costs, um, is that they, they produce wars produce periods of, you know, um, unparalleled mobilization in every sense, the unparalleled release of, of economic and other forms of social energy. And um, but of course, what we're asking people to do in the current crisis is exactly the opposite. We're asking them to deactivate, to demobilize, to to um, to remain at home, not to go to their businesses, you know, not not to expect to, to be paid rents and not to pay rent, not to, you know, to forego uh, income. And that that this kind of freezing, slowing down of the economy makes for a very different set of demands on people from the kinds of mobilization we see in times of war. Yes, I, I, I think that's a very good point. And also, we've never, you know, we, we may witness a great, another Great Depression coming out of this moment. And uh, it will be the first, if that happens, it will be the first uh, Great Depression that issued from government orders, not just from the failure in supply and demand. Absolutely. That, that's find, some, find some equilibrium, but of, of, of governments shutting down the global economy. Uh, this is exactly, exactly. This, this, this is an, there's an element of vulnerability for governments in this, isn't there? Because, you know, I'm, I'm th I was thinking of something like, you know, the great, in, the, the, the hyperinflation in, in Germany in 1922-23, which, um, you know, when the currency just melted down and became you know, less valuable than the paper it was printed on. And that was a situation produced in part by political agency and, you know, the massive overprinting of banknotes by the, the Reichsbank and so on. But it was partly just a consequence of an inflationary practice which had been going on right through the First World War and continued thereafter and coupled with the effort to pay um, reparations and so on. Uh, but, and the interesting thing about the, the, the inflation is that the inflation itself didn't have a very divisive a political effect. It didn't produce much toxic fallout. What did produce toxic fallout were the efforts of the government, the successful efforts of the government to restabilize the economy afterwards, because that involved the government directly taking a hand in the sort of destinies of the economy. And there is, I think, what is, that's, I think, something we may see in the next year or two, is that governments will not so much, well, of course, right now they're being judged on their handling of the epidemic, but what will really be difficult for them will be to be judged on their handling of the recovery and the management of the, uh, of the economic damage that the shutdown will have done. I think that's right, although I think we do, we, we do have more experience with governments being judged on their ability to 
to handle recovery. Uh, I think of the Great Depression in the United States, which came a few years um, after Germany's crisis and certainly worsened Germany's crisis, we might say, uh, because of government uh, under Herbert Hoover uh, missteps in terms of un not understanding the ramifications of tariffs, for example, or immediate repayment of debts internationally. Uh, but but the, the part of what one sees in the Great Depression in the 1930s is the slow, uneven, uncertain character uh, of the Rooseveltian recovery in the United States. He's given credit, Roosevelt is, for getting the United States out of the, out of the Great Depression. But think of it this way. He came into office in 1933, and it wasn't until America went to war in 1941 that it really fully recovered from the Great Depression. So for eight long years of his presidency, uh, the, the government was uncertain about what, what to do. And that does expose a government to censure uh, 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 vulnerability. Uh, and I hear, I think we also see um, uh, a, a very unfortunate contrast between what Roosevelt, how he conducted himself in his administration then and what Trump is doing now. Uh, Roosevelt was upfront uh, about the need to experiment. One of his slogans was bold experiment, uh, bold experimentation. A recognition yeah. that some things would be tried and and um, and and that they would fail, uh, and uh, that's part of what got him through. Uh, and psychologically, he was uh, able to um, comfort a, a nation suffering uh, a great deal of pain in ways that Trump is not able to do. And also, uh, Roosevelt was eager to test his powers to expand them uh, in ways. Uh, and he was not an autocrat. This is a fascinating contrast with Trump. Uh, Roosevelt had a very healthy regard for the democratic process. Trump mm -hmm. does not. And yeah. yet R Roosevelt in these, in his radically uncertain and unprecedented times, uh, was willing to experiment, was willing to st strengthen the central government, even though he risked having his programs declared unconstitutional by the court, which has happened, which happened on uh, uh, a number of occasions. He's, he, he tried initiatives in different areas. Uh, what we see in contrast with Trump is a reluctance. Here's a man who wants to be king, who wants, in his own words, total authority. I have total authority, he declared once a couple weeks ago. And yet his reluctance to experiment, to take responsibility, to seize the reins of power, to enforce the kind of authority that is actually there at his disposal uh, is just stunning. Here's an example, again, where one can mobilize in this period of demobilization. It's clear that uh, for economies to open up, we're going to need a, the U.S. and every other society is going to need a massive tracking system of everyone infected and who they've been in contact with. Why not convene tomorrow or this week a force of 500,000 people or a million people unemployed by the restaurant business, desperate for work, many of whom are already exposed to the virus and thus have antibodies, why not convene them into a new civilian uh, anti-epidemic corps? Why not employ Let's them? Go. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's an example of where one could uh, mobilize. Uh, if you think of that kind of leadership uh, and that kind of boldness uh, and that kind of seizing the crisis um, 
you know, with the kind of seizure that it needs to act, we begin to realize what has not been happening with the Trump administration. Yes, and what we've had instead is sporadic suggestions on, along the line that the Defense Procurement Act could be invoked to force meat production companies to stay open, for example. Well, it, it, he has the Defense Production Act at his disposal. That act from 1950 gives him the power to coerce any kind of manufacturing in the United States that he wishes to coerce. I mean, it's an extraordinary power that he's had, and he's... Um, reluctant to use it except under the most um, ex exceptional circumstances. And it's not because he thinks it's bad that it would be wrong to amass too much center and uh, too much power in his own hands. Uh, when push comes to shove, he's a bit of a coward and is afraid to assume a kind of power that if it goes awry, he worries being blamed for it. And so he prefers to get in all, all these little spats and create chaos and do one thing one day and one thing the next. And the result is uh, a terrible lack of direction um, at the center of government, which is exactly where the United States needs it to cope with the current crisis. Absolutely. And now in his book, um, Contagion and the State, Peter Baldwin wrote that the that, that major epidemics, uh, that's to say the measures embraced by states to try and contain them, uh, go, as, as he put it, to the heart of the social contract because they touch on questions of individual uh, liberties um, and the, the point at which, you know, the measures of the state have to make a halt before individual liberties, to the extent to which these can be temporarily suppressed or suspended in order to meet the, the needs uh, created by epidemic uh, threats. What kind of condition is the is that social contract in in the U.S. right now? Well, I I, I think um, one one measure of a lack of confidence in the social contract is uh, the level of gun ownership uh, in America and the hmm. aggressiveness aggressiveness with which that alleged right is defended. In a society that's comfortable with the social contract, where certain uh, liberties are given up or limited for the sake of security, uh, one would not see that level of gun ownership. Uh, there were some reports, we haven't got exact figures on this, but there were some alarming reports that when, in states like Tennessee, when the $1,200 checks began coming in as part of the bailout, $2 trillion bailout package, that gun sales in the state of Tennessee tripled and quadrupled over the next week. A, a kind of a remarkable story of Americans using money for sustenance to go out and buy guns. Um, and this is an indication of a sense among the gun owning part of the population that uh, the social contract is not something that uh, can be trusted. Uh, a uh, for a social contract. Now, the the, the United States has been a, a democratic republic for a long time. Uh, you know, it's the it's working under the longest continuously um, operating constitution, written constitution in the world. That is a social contract, right? Um, a yeah. Physical ma physical manifestation of it. It has never missed an election in its history. Um, and even during the worst conflict in its history, which was the Civil War, 1861 to 
1865. And if we if we take the longevity of the Constitution, uh, if uh, if we take the fact that America has never seen an election suspended, and of course, crucial to the social contract is not just what the people agree to give to the government and what the government agrees to give to the people. It means that at, at, a, at, a, at a regular interval, the people has a right to change the terms of that social contract mm. through the people they elect to represent them. Uh, the uh, the U.S. has, uh, by those measures, a very strong social contract, but it has been weakening over the last 30 years as the Republican Party has encouraged contempt for government, which, of course, is a crucial player in enforcing the uh, social contract. And uh, it's one of the, um, what do we want to call it, uh, the challenges of history, circumstance, and life that the United States has an election, a critical election bearing down upon it that coincides precisely with this epidemic or with the second wave. And there's considerable chatter in the United States about whether this election will mm -hmm. go on as expected or whether uh, Trump will seek to postpone it. Um, because he fears he will lose. Uh, so the US has looming just in the next six months, a profound challenge to its social contract. And someone in the White House who has no regard for social contract of that sort, perhaps being willing to tear it up for the sake of maintaining the only thing that matters to him, which is personal power and wealth. That's fascinating, uh, and it's it's particularly interesting for me because um, we had an uh, in an earlier podcast with Catherine Olivarius at the University of Stanford. She made the point that during the yellow fever um, epidemics, well, they were they they were it was an annual fever season in, in New Orleans uh, in the early nineteenth century, and the summer months were always um, full of fever visitations with very high mortalities. And she spoke of a, of, of a phenomenon called temporal gerrymandering, where um, where the where, where people planning elections would try and use the epidemic conditions in order to achieve particular outcomes. For example, scheduling elections during the the the, the fever season in the hope that their uh, leading opponents would not be in the city at the time because they tended to leave for safer locations out in the country. Um, do you think there's any sense, of any any hint at the moment that anybody's trying to manipulate the crisis? I mean, you're suggesting that um, the administration itself may be hoping to use the crisis in order to postpone the elections. Absolutely, this is this is happening. A um, couple examples of this. It makes all the sense in the world to enable Americans to vote by mail uh, rather than vote in person. Absolutely. So, what has Trump been talking about in the last few weeks? shutting down the post office. What does shutting down the post office mean, even though he's not connecting to it, obviously, in his commentary? It means shutting down the ability of Americans to vote by mail. There are going to be huge fights over who's eligible to vote. There always are in every election. And the Republicans, uh, because they can never really get a majority anymore in a presidential election, eager to exclude people from the rolls, and the Democrats eager to add people to the rolls, and, elect, and the right to vote uh, in America has often been treated as much as a privilege as a right. And all kinds of people are always being identified. For example, people who've served, served time in jail, do they have the right to vote or not? 
in Florida, uh, the last election, a referendum was passed giving ex-felons, restoring to them the right to vote. This is now being challenged in the courts in Florida. Uh, this is an, th these are enormous numbers of people. This is an example over who's going to be eligible to vote. So the fight is on. It's going to get quite vicious. And of course, the Supreme Court is a politicized institution uh, with a majority of Republicans, partisan Republicans, who may tilt the election uh, toward their man as the Supreme Court of 2000 tilted the election to Bush in 2000, even though there's lots of indication that Gore was the legitimate winner at that time. So these matters are very much in play. And just to add one more element to that, uh, if you were to design an election system vulnerable to hijacking, uh, gerrymandering, uh, it would be the American system because it's so decentralized. It's not simply that states each have their own electoral system, but within states, counties are responsible in many places for setting down the rules of voting, for managing the ballot machines, for, for setting yeah. down the rules of who will be voting under whose circumstances. Uh, so there are so many different points of entry for hackers, for manipulators, for politicians to get into this business and to screw things up. So um, the, uh, the, the gerrymandering that Catherine Oliverius uh, was talking about, here's another opportunity to do so, but on steroids, because it's not just New, or not just New Orleans, but it's the entire United States of America that is at stake. I suppose that one of the exciting things about democracies is that everything's kind of always up for grabs. But, um, well, not everything, but, but a lot of things um, are. The fundamental structures, perhaps not. One hopes the basic values are not. But at the moment in, in the United States, it does seem that, that more and more is up for grabs. And less and less can we, we can, we, we're, we're, the entire system is outside its own comfort zone. Um, I think we're coming to a, an end now, but I wanted to ask you, uh, take it to a slightly different place and think, thinking now about the history of um, grand epidemic um, challenges, um, there is one great antecedent in the, in the case of the United States, which is the, the immense Spanish flu epidemic, which broke out um, across the world, a, pa a pandemic, in fact, which broke out across the world and killed between 50 and 100 million people, many more than it looks like COVID-19 will ever account for. And uh, in fact, it killed more Americans than died in the First World War. But one of the strangest, one of the really strange things about that is that we, we haven't really integrated that into our history of any of the countries which experienced this pandemic. And in general, I think we find it difficult to integrate um, epidemic challenges of this kind, epidemic catastrophes into our grand narratives uh, and, and also into historical memory. You know, think of the fact that there's a smallpox epidemic raging during the American Revolution. It's always a sidebar to the main to the main menu. So, why do you think that is? Uh, it's a fascinating question, Chris, and I'm going to need your help puzzling this through because, frankly, I have not really thought about it until this current pandemic, and I, I, I'm part of this. Uh, probably large majority of historians who has paid very little attention to disease, even though I've written extensively about World War I and recognized its importance as a transition point in American history. Uh, I've lectured on it for 30 years. I don't think once in that 30 years have I mentioned the 
Spanish flu pandemic, except to say that 500,000 Americans died, when, whereas only 100,000 died in battle in World War I. But then it was right back to World War I and what the consequences of that light casualty load meant for America in terms of differenti differentiating itself from Europe. Uh, so I am as guilty as anyone in terms of not figuring in disease to our understanding of the sweep of history or pivot points. I think I would think medievalists and early modernists are a bit better at this than we modernists are. And it would be interesting to bring them into the conversation yeah. as to why that's been the case. Um, I think it probably has uh, something to do with human beings being our subjects and us being preoccupied either by the structures that human beings create and that yeah. have then have a subsequent bearing uh, on the behavior of human beings in, his, in past time, or we focus on the agency of, of human beings themselves. Um, coping with the structures uh, that they find themselves caught in and sometimes trying to escape from. Uh, so even though in structures we have forces exogenous to human agency that could easily be reimagined to take account of the impact of disease on these structures, we haven't done it. And I, I think it has something to do with uh, the inanimate nature. It's not inanimate because disease is animate, but the uh, the non-human nature of this factor uh, and the di difficulty many of us have had into uh, reckoning with this in our study of humanity. Uh, perhaps the place to look for a way out of this uh, is the history of the environment, um, yeah. the physical environment, also ignored for a very long period of time and now being incorporated in ways that never was before. So first there was the history of environment pretty much disconnected from the march of time. Uh, I think of writing about the New Deal, uh, which I've done a lot of writing about. Rarely did I ever stop to consider that the entire promise of the New Deal was contingent on the supply of, unending supply of cheap energy. Yeah. And what the implications of that are for the long term in, in terms of the world we inhabit. So I would I, I would think that uh, understanding the strides made in environmental history and the insistence that this can no longer be hived off from the central political dramas uh, that we write about uh, can be instructive to us as we use this as an opportunity, as I hope we will, to integrate the history of disease and its implications back into the history of humanity. Yes, I mean, the, the a great novel, The Man Without Qualities by Mudil begins with a scene where, uh, in which he, he makes the, the protagonist, the protagonist is actually a sort of high pressure weather system forming over the, over the Habsburg monarchy and, um, and creating you know, hot weather and sunny conditions and so on. Um, but of course, that's a, just a sort of joke. And then the, the, the rest of the book is, you know, embedded in the usual forms of human agency. We do seem to have real trouble, you know, recalibrating our very human-centered narrative practices to, to, in, to integrate things that are dynamic and, and have impacts like weather systems and diseases, but are not human uh, and don't have agency or intention in the sense that we understand them. Um, 
I, I suppose there's one other possibility, and there was an article just the other day in, in, the, in the Dutch newspaper, NRC Handelsblad, which said that you know one reason why epidemics don't attract our attention is because so much of the burden of caring for the ill falls on women, and our our narrative practices are so focused on male agency that um, that that's been another reason why they've been marginalised. Do you think that's a credible view? Uh, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, uh, and I have to confess, I don't even know enough about how the pandemic unfolded in America in 1918 to 20 to understand whether gender in that moment was decisive in terms of structuring how um, how historians have viewed it. My initial, I, I'm intrigued by that, um, uh, but uh, uh, if caring is gendered female, um, death is gendered male, right? Um, and if you think of the energy, the uh, you know, if, if it, the, the, if we think of death and war, I guess one way of thinking about this is death from disease. Is there something about that and the, and the absence of any kind of heroism associated yes. with that is, is that different from death in war? And I think as I frame it in that way, I say, of course it is. So that might be. And so in, in, in fact, death from disease may be figured as feminine, whereas death in war may be figured as masculine, one deserving of uh, praise and monuments and the other surrounded by a kind of uh, shame. That's very interesting. That's a very good way, I think, of deepening that the insight explored in that in that um, in that newspaper article. Um, I want to, to close now. But do you, how do you see the situation in the United States today further developing? Do you think there are going to be uh, medium or longer term consequences of this of this crisis um, for um, for today's America? Uh, I do. Um, I think the um, the reigning uh, political order in America uh, from the Reagan era until 2010-28 was a neoliberal one, a celebration of global capitalism, free markets, free trade, yeah. free, mo free movement of people. Uh, this began to come apart after the uh, financial crisis of 2008. And uh, this current crisis is going to lead to a profound rethinking of that uh, unthinking commitment to globalization, uh, just-in-time manufacturing, long supply chains. There's going to be a fundamental rethinking of what countries need to, to return to your earlier point, to rebuild the social contract and trust between governors and the governed. And clearly governments mm -hmm. are going to, are coming out of this with a lot of everywhere with a lot of egg on their face and not having performed very well. And there's going to be a reckoning with that. And, and I think there's going to have to be a reconstruction of polities and political economy in light of that. So it didn't start with the coronavirus, but the coronavirus has dramatically accelerated that process. Uh, and the consequences, both for our politics and our economics, I think are, are, are very major. What is unknown at this point is whether this reconstruction is going to have a right or left-wing inflection. The right-wing inflection is all around us. Uh, we, we can discern its outlines. Uh, heavily protectionist, heavy social welfare for the right kind of people, our people. Uh, 
heavily bordered societies, uh, viciousness toward those who are defined as being racial or religious others and not part of our tribe. Uh, we can see this is the populist initiative that is so popular all around the world right now. Mm. Uh, and then um, uh, in the United States, I, I, I don't see this as clearly elsewhere in the world. One can see a left alternative beginning to um, emerge. This is what Bernie Sanders is about. Elizabeth Warren, a very significant left, has been reborn here. A Green New Deal is now on the books. Uh, restoration of an assault on corporate power that we have not seen since the, since the age of Louis Brandeis, early 20th century, is now, now a real possibility. So anti-monopoly being the strongest weapon Americans have historically wielded against um, too much concentrated economic power. Uh, so there is a left version uh, of this that has been incubating, developing, gathering in force. And right now it's impossible to say which will be triumphant by 2025 or 2030. That of course makes the election of 2020 absolutely critical in terms of sh shaping the direction of things. I think we'll, we'll have a much better sense a year from now about whether the left or the right version of this is likely to gain ascendancy in the United States. But it is uh, it is the issue of the moment, and it's not about disease specifically, but the coronavirus has made this choice an urgent one uh, and one that the United States will be battling over for the next several years. Gary Gerstel, thank you so much for helping us to illuminate aspects of the current COVID-19 crisis using history to think about the present. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris.